0: Welcome to the Late Fragments podcast, in which I discuss money, politics, sex, and religion with remarkable octogenarians. In this episode, I'll be talking to the former Labour Party leader Neil Kinnock. Kinnock needs no introduction. Born and educated in Wales, he entered Parliament in 1970 and was elected party leader in 1983. In the ensuing years, he dedicated himself to rebuilding Labour's reputation and helping it face up to the challenges of modern politics. For years he was the thorn in the then-Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher's side. Endlessly denounced, ridiculed and caricatured by the media, he held firm, with his eye firmly, on the electoral prize. But when he lost the 1992 election by some 1,500 votes, he was almost broken. The mantle of Prime Minister was never his, said Tony Blair, after his landslide Labour victory in 1997. But I know that without him it would never have been mine. A devoted family man and force for change, Kinnock went on to become a European commissioner in Brussels and continues to this day to be a totemic figure in the labour landscape. Now 81, he spends much of his time caring for his beloved wife, Glennis, who is suffering from Alzheimer's. Our interview was conducted over Zoom with Kinnock sitting in the brand new Fiat he'd just bought during the small window he has each day when carers come to relieve his load. All any of us should ever be is faithful to our core qualities and beliefs, he says, and grateful for those that we love. I hope you enjoy listening. You sound like you came from a wonderful home. You weren't poor, but your ancestors, you came from a poor background originally.
1: Yes, that's right. My Uh, grandparents on both sides and indeed before them were extremely poor. And it veered occasionally into destitution really. For instance my mother was very bright. Uh, She got a scholarship to the local grammar school in Aberdeer in South Wales and she was thriving. Uh, But she had to leave when she was 16 in the middle of the general strike in 1926 because the family was destitute and it was important for her then to try to get work, but also somewhere to live uh, because uh, she just wanted to remove any form of burden and so she became a trainee nurse. Uh, Her ambition had been to be a doctor and she certainly had the capability but uh, she became a lifelong professional nurse and was brilliant. And indeed, the doctors used to say she was a great diagnostician. But that's the reason that she had to leave school at 16. And My father, of course, like all of his brothers except one, left school when he was 13. And within a couple of weeks was an ostler's boy looking after the pit ponies at the bottom of the mine shaft in a deep mine in Tredegar which is called t Translated, that means House of Sadness. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that, that was the background. Uh, it's one of the reasons, of course, that I'm an only child. Um, my mother lost a couple of other children during pregnancy, but um, both of them came from families which remained large even after childhood deaths. And uh, like many in their generation, they worked out that uh, fewer children would mean better chances. And that background of understanding of poverty uh, had a real influence. It never made them miserable. And indeed, the sheer scale of deprivation uh, became a source of humor some great jokes about not having anything and uh, that was the background. I never suffered because of it. There were two incomes in my uh, household. My father worked literally until he dropped and my mother was an absolutely dedicated professional and they saw that I lacked for nothing. Uh, they never could afford a car. I bought the family's first television secondhand with earnings from newspaper rounds and odd jobs. Uh, But I never for one second ever felt poor or deprived. In many ways, the community in which I grew up in industrial South Wales was very rich entirely because of collective action and collective contribution. It meant that we had facilities and opportunities that nobody in my town could have afforded individually but collectively we had top-class tennis courts, swimming baths, the Toledo Workman's Hall with a magnificent library and a wonderful theater and everything from the rugby club to and recreation grounds to the operatic society and everything that goes with the rounded and cultural life was made available by collective action and contribution. That, of course, included the Terriga Workman's uh, Medical Aid Society, which became the model uh, for the National Health Service. Our Member of Parliament, who uh, was a source of great inspiration to me, was an Irvin Bevan, uh, the architect of the National Health Service. And he'd been a committee member of the Medical Aid Society when he was a young man before he went to Parliament. And so consequently I could see those uh, huge benefits and it meant that I always felt well cared for and uh, lived in a well appointed community. But in that community it was evident that there were seriously poor people, often associated with age and illness and my mother was a district nurse and consequently during school holidays um, I would sometimes go on the district with her when we had something that we had to go to afterwards visit to my grandparents or buying clothes from the Terriga Cooperative Society (laughs) Um, and so I'd, I'd spend three or four hours going into different houses and asking my mother afterwards from, I guess, quite a young age, really, as kids would, well, why haven't they got this? Why haven't they got that? And she would say, because they can't afford it. And uh, since these were basic features of our home, whether it was um table lamps, I remember on one occasion, or books or radio set, Um raising questions like that made me aware of, um, not acutely, but in general terms, almost osmotically of the fact that there were in my community, people who weren't as poor, but were deprived.
0: Did making money yourself ever inform your career choices?
1: (laughs) No, no, I I was immensely fortunate. I I mean, I grew up with the awareness that you must never get into debt. My mother, for instance, like a lot of other working class women, would save enough to pay for some goods, say um, uh, a refrigerator or a washing machine, before she'd enter into a higher purchase contract. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And my father he didn't boast about it or beat his chest over it, but um, uh, he saw the appalling consequences of people getting into debt, and he was therefore very proud of the fact that they had never been in debt of any description. And I guess that uh, becomes part of your consciousness. So consequently, I always wanted to get a decent job with good pay. Um, even when I was in university, if I was running out of money, and that was in the days when, of course, we paid no tuition fees, unlike now, and when we had grants. Mine wasn't the highest grant because both my parents were working. But my wife, Lenis, um, I met her when she was in her first week in university. Poor girl. Anyway, her father was a a railway signalman, who worked God knows how many hours, um, but still had very low wages. And he and his wife, Patty, she, they raised two children, both of whom went to university, and they never were in debt. I used to say my mother-in-law had elastic money, uh, because um, they just uh, had a comfortable home and never went without. and their income was tiny, even by 1950s and 60s and 70s standards. Um, mm-hmm. So that idea of getting a decent job with a good salary was part of my uh, purpose. You could call it an ambition, really, but it was never as strident as that. I was always confident that I was going to get a decent job. So, You know, I was always conscious of needing security, but never ambitious to earn vast amounts of money. A steady salary, which enabled us to afford the house comfortably, to pay the bills comfortably, to buy nice furniture and a few paintings and any book that we wanted. And that was great. That was wonderful.
0: But you've never lost your sense and I imagine you're very aware of it now of how much suffering comes with poverty
1: Yes and what what is really searing the increase in poverty itself uh, with millions in our country now enduring poverty I mean there are over 3 million children in homes that are officially classified as poor. That is to say, having less than 60% of the median income. When you are talking in millions, that, first of all, impoverishes the whole society. Because poverty doesn't come by itself. Poverty of income, poverty of uh, earning, poverty of sufficiency, makes for poverty of uh, expectation, of aspiration. Um, And it means, therefore, that our society, by having so much poverty, is disabling itself overall. Um, And then secondly, of course, It isn't just the existence, again, in the 21st century, which is astounding and disgusting, of widespread poverty, but it's the way in which, since the 1980s, the gap between the rich and the medium income and the poor, uh, which has been closing since the end of the Second World War, has been opening. So there's now a bigger gap between the top income, 5%, and the middle income, 70 odd percent, and then the bottom quarter or third of our society, which is on very low incomes, uh, and having to meet, of course, expenses, which at the moment, are being inflated by a variety of things. So, I think you, no matter what your income or how, quote, quote, comfortable you are, and Dennis and I are fortunately comfortable, and I, I'm very glad about that, and our children are secure, and I'm even more glad about that, um, you cannot fail to be aware that... Walking down the street, going into a shop, um, going into a pub, getting on the tube or the bus, you witness poverty because you know there are people around you who can't afford much above the very, very basics of life. And that makes them poor in pocket, but poor in spirit as well. And that certainly bothers me, maybe even obsessively. Do you see,
0: envisage a a near future in which that is rectified?
1: Yes, uh, you would expect me to say really that with the election of a Labour government, they will make a big difference because of specific policies they've got and because of a sense of rational purpose that they've got not simply because they sympathize with the very large numbers of poor people that we've got absolutely and relatively poor people we've got but also because they realize that is a a real disadvantage for our whole society fewer people live at the breadline i mean it's very straightforward
0: how hopeful are you that the next party in power will be
1: yours? I'm pretty optimistic at the moment, certainly that we can be the largest party in Parliament. I mean, a variety of efforts will be made by the Conservatives and their supporters to narrow the current polling gap, and obviously that will take place. As we get near to the election, the gap will narrow. Uh, But I think now, because of the breadth of appeal and the basic utility, the realism of the appeal being made by Keir Starmer and his team, I I really do think there's a very good chance of people saying things can't go on like this and realising they don't have to.
0: You obviously still have a burning desire to make the world a better place. Oh, yeah. yeah, Where Where did that come from originally, do you think, that spirit in you?
1: Um, I think it's why we're here, basically. Uh, I don't want to become too deeply philosophical, but um, I think it's in human nature to want to try to ensure that with each succeeding generation, Uh, the condition of life, the security of life, the durability of life even, becomes stronger. And, you know, I suppose it's summed up in the very basic statement, uh, we want to leave the world a better place than the one that we found. If you don't have that purpose in life, then you're either desiring or accepting that the world just treads water, or gets worse. Um, and, you know, experience teaches you anyway, but, you know, by the time you're 15, let alone by the time you're 81, that if you're not trying to make things better, they will get worse. Some days, my intellect, my head tells me things are pretty bloody bleak. And faced with that, I have to resort to determination, to trying to make a contribution, which is extremely minor and modest now, to take refuge, if you like, in optimism.
0: of the contribution that you have made
1: I I guess so yes I suppose I I could nominate the way in which with a great deal of uh, persistence determination bloody mindedness and some really good comrades and friends uh, we managed to make the Labour Party electable even though I failed, and I will always live with that, to get it elected. So I suppose that's a source of pride. I'm very proud of having the kids that we've got, and I'm proud of advances that we made because I stimulated them. There are bits of my life that I, I think have been positive. I can take some satisfaction from that. I could also offer you A long list of criticisms and shortcomings, of course, very long list.
0: (laughs) You talk about having failed. You you were leader of your party for nine years. And then in 1992, you lost the election by some 1,500 votes.
1: 1,240. But that's the way in which the first-past-the-post system works. And it's no good me crying bitter tears over that. I wanted to win because I think we could have made Britain a better country to live in and made uh, a significant international contribution, uh, but we didn't win, so we got to live with that.
0: I have two questions, really. How did you cope with that defeat? And also, how did you cope with the endless battering from the media, which must have felt relentless at the time?
1: Well, on the second point... Uh- Any human being who says they're not affected by that daily uh, assault of criticism is simply not telling the truth. Of course, the barbs did strike, and of course they hurt, but you couldn't afford for one minute to allow them to divert you uh, from the course that you knew had to be followed. So I just put that down to the inevitable territory of being the leader of uh, a radical party, Democratic Socialist Party in the United Kingdom with a press that is largely owned by tax exiles who are very hostile to the kind of changes we wanted to make. How did I cope with... the the disappointment of losing the 92 election. First of all, that was to some extent blunted by the fact that I'd known for mm, maybe two and a half, three weeks before the defeat that we were very unlikely to win. I could taste it and smell it. That we were going to come close, but not close enough. So uh, my disappointment was, to some extent, offset by that. And then, something I didn't really uh, anticipate, I couldn't anticipate beforehand, from the day that we lost, I became preoccupied with what was going to happen to the people in my staff who had literally given me their lives. They worked stupid hours as much as 20 hours a day. I beca- I became absolutely obsessed in those awful weeks between losing the election and getting John Smith elected. What what were they going to do? As it happens, it worked out for all of them because they were people of great talent. But uh, largely due to their own efforts, um, they all lived very satisfactory and productive lives afterwards. But I was desperately worried about what was going to happen to them. And that really diverted my attention from the oppressive realization uh, that we'd lost again. um, In addition, (laughs) and this I, I guess people will understand this because of their own experience in their own lives in the wake of a massive disappointment or even a bereavement. Glennis um, insisted, uh, my wife, within days of us being defeated that we were going to move house. <laughs> and So in the middle of all this, um, I lost the election at the beginning of April And we moved house on the 30th of June. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, when I was, even when I was in the office and talking to estate agents and fixing a mortgage and doing all those things, (laughs) it was a gigantic distraction. So I I suppose that, (laughs) on reflection, I suppose that helped too. Do
0: you think she did it on purpose to take your mind off it?
1: Um, or knowing Glennis I've always suspected that was part of the purpose but actually what she wanted to do was we had a a nice house it wasn't a big house but it was a a nice house and she just wanted to leave those years behind uh, those nights staying up all night to write speeches on the the kitchen table. Uh, really, that's what, she just wanted to leave that behind, and I suppose um, that also is a uh, an instinct that will be familiar to people if they think about their own lives. That when there's been a, I was going to say catastrophic, but of course nobody died. We we lost an election, um, but in. In the circumstances of those days, people were willing to describe it as a catastrophe. And when you've experienced that, you just want to make a leap, get out of it, move away. In some cases, people actually move abroad. (laughs) Um, We we moved about a mile.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you had a wonderful wife and children. Yeah. You had a lot else in your life other than politics.
1: That, that was the saving grace. When my parents died in 1971, within eight days of each other, Glennis was a rock. She was extraordinary. And exactly a week after my mother died, uh, our daughter Rachel was born. Uh, she was about a fortnight late. And uh, those distractions that distraction and the massive comfort that i got from glennis and indeed the rest of the family and my my close friends and comrades um that enabled me to deal with the fact that my parents had gone in an idling and in much the same way in the wake of the 92 election defeat that kind of support from Glenys, from my brother and sister-in-law, from our close friends, and from Steve and Rachel, our our children, was invaluable. And then uh, extraordinarily, on the Saturday after we lost the election, Rachel was accepted in university, which was terrific. That lifted us. And then A few weeks later, Stephen got a very good degree in Cambridge, and that lifted us again. So, you know, these things occur. I'm I'm not a believer in fate, but there are coincidences that can help you through all kinds of travails.
0: is it fair to say, was your first real girlfriend?
1: Yes, really. I'd I'd fallen in love a couple of times, obviously. Unrequited. (laughs) But then I saw this girl. um, It was her first week in university. In fact, only her second day. And I'd been in university in Cardiff for a year. And by that time, I was chairman of the Socialist Society. So I'm going up and down the lunchtime queue in what was rather grandly called the refectory, which was actually a canteen. I can see her now. She had beautiful brown hair and she was wearing a brown sweater and brown slacks. And uh, I mean, she took my eye in my, my first walk up and down the line. And as I came closer, coming back down the line, she said, are you the man from Socialist Society? And I was, Bit bowled over by being described as the man from society. <laughs> <laughs> we got into conversation and at the end of it, I said, uh, are you going to the hop on Saturday? She said, yeah, we, we thought she was in digs with three other girls. We thought we'd give it a try. I said, yep, great. Okay. Well, I might see you there. And of course I did see her there. And my intention was to ask if I could take her home. Which I did. The problem is I'd been playing rugby that afternoon, had a kick in the head. <laughs> so after having a couple of pints, I didn't actually drink much, and the kick in the head, on the way walking her home, I passed out. So she took me home. And that was the beginning of our relationship. Obviously I had a couple of ups and downs in the first year or so. And I had to fight off Rivalries by one or two other youngster gentlemen in uh, university, one of whom was the captain of the basketball team and the other one uh, was the Welsh International Centre 3 quarter. But I managed to beat them off and, <laughs> and we got married in 1967.
0: And she's been at your side the whole way through your career. I mean, it goes without saying that her... Support was crucial to your success, but how crucial was it?
1: Sure. Well, it was um, in two ways. First of all, her total reliability and the fact that she substantially brought the kids up. She was there permanently, anchored. There with the advice, the support, the sympathy, uh, the laughs, whatever. She provided the sheet anchor. Quite remarkable. I mean, I always did my damnedest to get to netball games or um, theatrical production or football, cricket, rugby games Steve played in uh, and Rachel's activities. And they always knew I was always striving to get there, even though I failed, I don't know, three times out of ten. But that doesn't really equate the kind of care and attention that kids need and Clennis provided it all. She was magnificent. So that was the one way, but the other way was she was a member of the Labour Party when I met her. She's always been a political soulmate and we could disagree agreeably. We could challenge each other, um, make arguments and always come out of it without any form of animosity. And the extraordinary thing was, of course, that when I was leader of the Labour Party, um, hostile people, especially in the press, tried to represent her as some kind of Lady Macbeth. And, God, she was the opposite of that. And they just found it impossible, or maybe not politically convenient, to accept genuine equality in a loving marriage. Anyway, it it didn't bother bother us. It used to enrage me when there was criticism of her. You know, anybody in a real partnership will always feel more offended by attacks on their partner than they will on themselves. But she'd always say, let it pass. Let it just go away. It's not the real world. And that would be the realistic attitude she took and it prevailed so i i wouldn't have done what i did if she hadn't been my dear friend my beloved friend and my dedicated comrade
0: a, a loving marriage of of nearly 60 years is an amazing achievement 56 years last week and congratulations and i know that Glenis... And it must be difficult for you to talk about so do say if you don't want to but i know that she's suffering from alzheimer's and that you're caring for her yeah where do you find your strength and comfort in doing that
1: first of all when glennis was fully herself just after she was diagnosed back in 2017 we had a family con club with uh, Stephen and Rachel, and we made a decision then, with her full engagement, that we wouldn't make a song and dance about the fact that she'd been diagnosed uh, with Alzheimer's, uh, but we'd never keep it secret. And any opportunity that arrived uh, for assisting with research or advocacy, we would do it. So that's how we've done things uh, ever since and even though she's not uh, capable of understanding now uh, that's how she very definitely said she wanted to be how do I cope? I I cope fine um, I mean I'm enormously fortunate and this is partly by accident that Rachel and her husband Stuart and their kids live in the next street and then Uh, Steve is there, he never misses a week if he's physically able to be in London. And Helle, his wife, who has got commitments all around the globe, we never go three weeks without seeing her. So, and they're 20 minutes away when they're in London. So we are immensely fortunate there, and in the fact that we've got a circle of friends Uh, including Janice's brother and our sister-in-law who live in Kingston, that give me huge familial, loving, and moral support. Secondly, and vitally, we're in the immensely fortunate position where we can afford uh, to have carers in five, six hours a day. And the two women who do it on different days are absolutely magnificent. Now, I don't know how people manage who can't afford that kind of support. Um, Well, I do know how they manage, and they manage with immense difficulty. But I'm fortunate, if you like, on the spiritual side, and I use that word advisedly, by having our children and friends uh, supporting me and uh, being dedicated to GLENIS uh, and on the material side uh, being able to afford uh, support from absolutely wonderful women. That keeps me alive, really. Um, so I'm lucky. I'm immensely fortunate. For better, for worse, for rich, for poorer, the, the words trip off your tongue and you in sickness and in health and you haven't got a clue what it actually involves um, and then you know 50, 60 years later it comes along and it says did you really mean that and of course you did
0: must be nice to be able to give something back to her too she gave you a lot
1: yep what i said somewhere last year in a tv interview i think um i she's been my rock for about 60 years really because she was an immense support when i was uh organizing and fixing and running and getting elected to things in university and uh now's the time to give something back uh but i'd have to live until I was 200, (laughs) to start to emulate what she's done.
0: So, moving on to religion. Did you have a faith as a young boy?
1: Until I was about 16 or 17, I had a, a kind of belief, which, which I realized when I was around about that age, had more to do with a belief in goodness than in uh, any divine being. Or system of religion. And so I consciously stopped going to chapel, uh, though I maintained the relationship with our minister, who was a a young man with a lovely wife, and they were members of the campaign for nuclear disarmament and very forward-looking, outward-going youngsters themselves in their early 30s and so I maintained the relationship with them which is more political than religious I guess but I just stopped going to chapel because I I simply knew I could not make the leap of faith and so if you can't have faith then you won't be religious
0: (laughs) and you've never felt it tugging at your sleeve
1: no, never. Uh, in some ways, and I'd, the last thing I want to do is to offend anybody of any faith, that's their entitlement, and if it gives them comfort and inspiration, that's fine with me. But, and I've never been aggressively atheist, but I am an atheist.
0: So where do you get your comfort and inspiration from?
1: Oh, humanity. Um, All the uh, good and courageous and generous and loving things that people do. Um, And do it uh, most of the time selflessly um, because they're thinking of how they can help other people or make life better or show. Meaningful affection uh, rather than soppiness, and work to organize compassion so that it's not just a, a good feeling and a nice purpose, uh, but useful for the people who need compassion at various times and stages in their lives. I, you know, that's that's my faith.
0: And you are now. I think you were 81 two days ago.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I didn't expect to make it this far, but, you know. Why uh,
0: not? Because of your
1: parents. Yes. um, And uh, I suppose things like a very pressurised life and lifestyle. But I mean, the kind of pressure I've had isn't the same as getting up five o'clock every morning and undertaking uh, sometimes dangerous, always demanding physical manual labor. Mind, that that keeps some people alive, so you shouldn't think of it as some kind of sentence. Uh, But, you know, I've never drunk alcohol to excess. Um, I've smoked, which is not good. Uh, but, oh, you know, I, I, look at, I look at my grandparents' generation and all they endured, a depression, constant insecurity, two world wars, um, accident in the colliery, lost fingers and pain of various kinds. And my three of my grandparents lived to their late 70s and early 80s but my parents died in their early sixties. And um, I suppose just statistically, I could always imagine uh, that I was just about going to make the three score years and 10, but it's uh, been a bit better than that.
0: You seem very well. You don't seem um, aged at all.
1: <laughs> I like you even more. Um, <laughs> I, I, I've got asthma. Um, a bad chest infection in 2020, left me with this damned asthma. It's the first time I'd ever had to stay in hospital overnight. Uh, I know when I'd had injuries and things previously, I've always been out on the same day, but I was a fortnight in hospital and they looked after me superbly, obviously, uh, lovely. But it left me with this damn nuisance um, asthma. Uh, which isn't disabling in any way, but it's, uh, it's a bit of a downer. Mm. But that's about it, actually. Oh, and I've got a pacemaker. Oh, <laughs> yeah. No 80 year old should be without twin. <laughs> Not having anything to be nasty about helps with longevity.
0: Last question, Neil. What matters in this life?
1: Well, in a sense, I would revert to what I said earlier, love matters, laughter matters. My two favourite activities uh, and tenses and experiences are loving and laughter. But if you need to discover a purpose in life, and I think every human being does, it's trying to make things better. If that sounds a bit pious, I'm sorry about that, but that's how it is. If you think that you can uh, edge progress, enlightenment, understanding, uh, broad minds, decent conditions, you think you can venture forward a little bit, um, that's, that gives you the sense of purpose you need.
0: Thank you for listening to the Late Fragments podcast. If you like what you heard and would like to hear more, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. In the next episode, I will be talking to the 91 year old former lady in waiting, Anglyn Connor, about life's hardships, the power of prayer and the joy of hitting your stride in your late 80s. In the meantime, my thanks to Harry Dundas for the sound production and original score. Until next time, goodbye.